listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're going to explore tips on talent development. Yvetta Bridges made it from a tiny high school in upstate New York to Google. In college, she didn't study computer science. She actually studied people and how to develop and pay them. Twelve years ago, Google was just beginning a series of deep dives in organizational development. One now-famous investigation was into why some teams are better than others. It turns out that psychological safety and team trust were the key variables to those teams' success. I find this interesting just as a side note, and it makes sense given that we've learned the same about youth and their ability to learn and engage in classrooms. Anyway, recently Tom got to chat with Iveta and learn more about talent development and Google's efforts to share lessons learned with educators. Near the end of the interview, Iveta describes her work as commissioner on the Little Hoover Commission and where she co-authored a recent report on how California should respond to the rise of artificial intelligence. Let's listen in. Iveta Bridges, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. It's great to be here. Where did you go to high school? So I actually grew up in very rural upstate New York, and I went to our public high school. So uh, rural upstate New York means that you have uh, in your public high school class 40 kids. Um, But I also simultaneously got my associate's degree from the local community college so that I could wow, take advanced you're like classes. like early dual enrollment, early Yeah, so early I, got my, I got my associate's degree the same time I got my but high that, school diploma. But that wasn't common when you were in high school, was it? Uh, it was, was not it common. Starting? My brother had done it. So my okay. brother was one of those kids who super, super smart and like the structured school environment just didn't work for him. Yeah. Um, and so he needed an alternative path. And so he figured that one out. And then for me, I wanted more advanced classes. And so I... Uh, he kind of trailblazed, um, and then I followed. Did you go to a brand-name college? I did, yeah. So I went, uh, I got my associate's degree, and then I went to Cornell and uh, was there for two and a half years. How did you get to Google? So um, I worked for a while after undergrad, then I went to business school um, and got recruited, actually. I I happened to take uh, an, an MBA internship in the area of compensation consulting, which is a very kind of technical area of HR, right. uh, kind of one of those really niche areas that's highly uh, sought after. And so uh, back in 2007 or 2000 and, uh, end of 2006, 2007, you know, Google was like a hot company, but not everyone knew, we weren't sure if it was like going to grow. I remember actually being in we took a financial statements analysis class. And I remember I, I chose Google because I think I was like getting recruited at the time. And everyone's like, there's no way this like revenue and the stock price can like continue. Right. And it's um, that was 2007. So, uh, so yeah, they recruited me. I actually wasn't sure if I wanted to go work there. Um, but probably the biggest things that really kind of put it over the top for me compared to my other offers were uh, the mission. You know, it's so bold to try to organize all the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful to everybody. I actually think deep down, like information asymmetry is such a root cause of so many um, injustices in our world. And so I really believe in that mission. And the second thing was the the people I met when I interviewed, they were just like, they blew my mind. You know, those interviews where you're just totally sweating, you think everyone's 10 times smarter than you and you have these great conversations um, and so I knew that uh, it would be a place that really pushed me. So you were involved in human resources at Google for more than a decade. Um, as you look back, how do you think about what you've learned about hiring great people? Yeah. 
So I think there's things that are that I've learned you know, through Google and I think that are really relevant to uh, organization of any sector, any size, whether you're for-profit, nonprofit, or a school. I think a big one is just that everyone thinks they're a great interviewer. Everyone thinks they're great at hiring and everyone loves to use their gut. And I think there's probably some people in the world whose gut is actually like got the best, like Jack Welch, he probably, his gut is probably built on like 40 years of the most incredible pattern recognition you've ever right. seen. But for most organizations, um, more structure and more process is always going to lead to better outcomes. So even if you don't have a ton of people applying, even if um, even if you don't have a lot of resources put into hiring, anytime you could add more structure and more science to your hiring process, you're going to get benefits. So some examples are, you know, people will write up a job description, post it online, and now you know science is showing that we tend to use really gendered terms in the types of job descriptions that we write that actually really influence how many women versus men will even apply for a job. And so being able to pause, understand that, and think about what adjectives you're using, what verbs you're using to actually kind of make your process more um, uh, less biased is critical. And then being really thoughtful about you know what you're looking for, um, taking the time to really understand what are the skills, experiences, characteristics of someone who's going to be successful here, and how do I accurately pull that out of the hiring process? Because um, if you don't actually put a little structure behind it, you tend to hire people like yourself, which can be great in some cases um, and can absolutely be faster um, than taking the time to add structure. But you're probably not going to get as rich uh, and diverse of a workforce than you. And you might not actually be hiring the right people. The other thing, so I'd say like the structure in science is the big one. So I'd say it's like inching into it, right? Like not everyone can have a huge hiring force like Google does or like these big, uh, huge companies do. But the other aspect that I think is really relevant, especially for the education community, is that, you know, a big part of hiring is having a place where people want to come to work. Yeah. You know, some people call this your talent brand. I like to call it the employee value proposition because a brand sounds like something you like, you put lipstick on a pig and it's going to look great. But I think it's like, from the very beginning, thinking not about like how much are you paying people, like how much vacation time do they get, how many, like what kind of benefits are they getting, but what is the experience of working at your organization, whether it's a school, whether it's a startup, whether it's a for-profit huge company, um, and really kind of being deliberate about that, whether you're the founder, the CEO, the president, the principal, really thinking about what is the experience of working here that is not some of those technical aspects. For example, do people feel like they have voice? Um, do they feel like they have input uh, when they're employees at the school? Do they get feedback? Do they have great relationships at work? Do they um, get recognition? There are some really great studies I read, I remember about a decade ago, that showed that even the best teachers that were advancing kids, you know, a grade level and a half in, in one year, they often wouldn't get thanked. They wouldn't be like, hey, thank you. Great job. I hope you can come back. I don't think we can pay you more, but you're incredible. Come back. That's not even happening yeah. in, to great teachers. And so those are some of the basic things that kind of actually really matter to the quality of work, but that we sometimes forget about. So I'd say that's really important in the hiring process, too, because if you want to attract great people, you have to kind of make sure some of the basics of the human engagement are in place at your company or your organization. During your, um, your tenure, I get the impression that um, maybe when you were hired out of a, a a couple of great schools that Google paid attention to pedigree, but that changed that you you began to recognize that there's set of skills and dispositions that 
weren't always guaranteed by a top school and, and did often come from, you know, a local state school. So did, did you move away from pedigree? I'd say we we definitely broadened our horizons. I think it's I'm actually really proud of all my colleagues at Google who kind of came to those realizations because it's it's you know, if you have a great brand and Google is still considered uh, one of the best places in the world to work, it's a highly sought after workplace. You can kind of have your pick of the um, pick of the litter, like pick of uh, pick of anyone who's applying. And so what like ta- tactically what that would look like is that you could you could get away with just going to like say like the top five business schools, the top ten engineering schools, and recruiting there, right? But what we found in our research was that there are really excellent candidates who, for a lot of really good reasons, were not going to those schools, and we were missing out on them. And so one of the big things that we did was significantly increase the number of schools that we started recruiting at, including going to the HBCUs, going to more state schools that had great engineering backgrounds, um, and I think that's. That's one really great example of uh, of where science uh, and research can help you understand where you could be doing a better job. Was that just because you were hiring a lot more people that you had to do that, or was that really to increase talent diversity? Yeah, it was really about the talent diversity. What um, What did you learn about the skills that it um, that were required to be successful at Google? Yeah, that's such a that's a really big question. You know, I always have to step back because, you know, having been there for 12 years, it's a it's a pretty crazy, it's a pretty intense, wonderful place to be. But it's um, we're now, you know, a huge company um, or they are uh, as I'm no longer there. So Google's now 100,000 full time employees all over the world. We have a huge portfolio of products. We don't just have one product. Right. Um and one of our products, uh, which is like our ad- one of our sets of products, advertising, they bring in like over $100 billion a year. But then we also have, I think it's like seven products that have over a billion active users, wow. like annually or monthly, some, some crazy stat like that. And so Google is not, it's, 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 it's a really big company with a large portfolio of products. So it's, it's kind of unique. You have to kind of put, I think, what it takes to be successful there in context. But in general, I think there are some traits that are pretty similar to like all all companies and organizations these days, like the ability to learn. Like our products are changing mon- weekly, monthly, daily sometimes. Um, and so one of the things I thought was really interesting, uh, we hired a lot of on our HR team, we would always hire this great cohort of rotational associates, these un- undergrads just out of college, and we'd rotate them through different areas of HR. Um, and I... I was always impressed. There was this one thing I found that a lot of them always did. They always found a way to automate their most boring tasks. Mm. They'd be like, uh, this spreadsheet is really dumb and it has to be auto-populated. So I'm going to create a macro and I'm going to learn some Python and I'm going to basically like automate my job away. And of course, they would always have something else to do, but they were always trying to like find ways to make work better, make everything better, and to they were always learning. Um, I think that's a really great example uh, of what it takes to be successful at Google I think also kind of um, collaboration is critical. Um, everything now, I don't know if we always say this, everything's done in teams now. I'm like, was it ever done not in teams? Like historically, did people really work by themselves? I don't know. Um, but being able to work in cross-functional teams, global teams, kind of having the empathy uh, to work with people of very different backgrounds, um, that is I think really, really critical as the world becomes more globalized and more more flat, as our friend Tom Friedman has told us. 
I'd say another important skill that I think is really critical, you, you kind of have to mention the hard skills, like computer science, right? It's um, a huge part of our workforce are software engineers uh, doing developing leading edge techniques and tools and products. And not everyone is a software engineer at Google, but it's it's a pretty incredible career to choose if you're so inclined. That's a great list. Um, now that you're hired and you're an, an employee at Google, what what does talent development look like? How do you yeah. advance? How do you? I guess how do you learn and how do you advance in your career? At Google, things are. Um, we do talent development a little differently than some of the kind of big blue chip, maybe like companies. So we tend to want to create as many options for employees as possible so that they can decide to pursue them. And so internal mobility is a really big um, thing at Google. So we are, we're really great at posting job opportunities internally, creating a process for internal transfers that's really um uh, very thoughtful, pretty easy. Um, so there's kind of like a fluid movement of talent at all times throughout Google. So that's probably like the single best opportunity people have to develop their careers by taking on new projects, stretch roles, totally working outside of their comfort zone in a different area. Um, We also provide a lot of kind of like other companies, Google provides a lot of uh, great courses um, that are run by professional facilitators, how to be a better manager, how to, you know, be a better team player, how to develop great teams, uh, we do great work in mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, but the other cool thing that I think is cat that a lot of companies are doing now is um, that we have a huge network of just employees who are not in HR, who are not professional facilitators, who actually teach the majority of our development classes. So kind of this peer, peer-based, what do you call it, peer-to-peer learning networks. Um, so um, I think it's a really great way that organizations that don't have a lot of money to spend on development can actually... Uh, use to offer great learning opportunities to their employees. And teaching is actually itself a great development opportunity for the person who becomes the teacher. So how does that work? Is it like an internal university? Are there regular structured classes? You- yeah, so there, there's a, you can get like a certification to be a G2G, uh, so Google's, Googler to Googler facilitator. And then, so you learn some basics about like how to design a course, how to run a course, but then um, you can kind of sign up through the internal network to teach courses when you want to. How long is the course? What's it like? I think it varies. They're all totally different. I think there's someone who teaches like a, a, a how to fly a plane class. And then there teaches, mm-hmm. you know, people who teach negotiation skills, how to create, how to write great PowerPoints, that kind of stuff. So it's really a huge spectrum of learning opportunities. It, it's interesting that uh, you, you still have some free time at Google to work on things that you're interested in. So there's a little bit of a choose your own adventure it sounds like it's important to be self-directed in your yes. your work and your learning to work at Google. Absolutely. That's probably one of the other top skills uh, I was thinking about is the ability to direct yourself, the ability to manage your own time. Um, one of the most, when I was working at Google and I would host visitors, um, one of the biggest one of the questions everyone always asks when they come in and they see the pool tables and the volleyball courts and the snack bars and the juice bars and like the bowling alley. I say like, when do you work? And it's uh, it always kind of surprises me because I don't really know if I ever knew anyone at Google who ever slacked off. Um, and I think it's because when you hire really conscientious, hardworking people, 
it kind of creates a social norm uh, of working hard and it kind of like lifts everybody, uh, lifts everybody up. And if it makes you be kind of self-directed, it makes you be self, uh, self-managed because there isn't anyone paying attention to like how many hours you're working or telling you when to be at your desk. Um, and so it really requires a lot of autonomy, which is also really fun. In the, I guess in the dozen years that you were there, uh, working from home or working remotely became much more prevalent. Some companies have actually grown up um, with, with an entirely or nearly yeah. uh, entirely virtual workforce. But I think most people at Google work at Google. Um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's one of those ones. It's like open offices. I think yeah. the jury's still out. Like, I think it's going to, I think in 20 years, we're going to have a better answer to this question through science. I think the answer is, as it always is, to these complex questions is going to be, it depends. Um, you know, on, one, on the one hand, you have incredible uh, technology now that allows anyone to join a, a meeting, to work collaboratively, to share to-do lists, to have video chats, be emailing kind of seamlessly. Yeah. Um, and you could, you know, in a big campus, like at some of these big technology companies, you know, someone who works five miles down the road, you're actually not going to drive to their office anyway. You're just going to do a video conference. Right. So you might as well be, you know, in Hawaii or Paris. But there is still a lot of value that people see in being together with colleagues. Um, we are a very social species. I think we we thrive, many of us, when we're physically around our colleagues. And of course, there's differences or people who are more extroverted and more introverted. But there's still some things I think that we just can't out, that we can't uh, take away um, or that we can't replicate through technology or through telepresence. And I think we don't know exactly what those are yet. But um, I think that's going to keep people those kinds of elements of social connection and fun and camaraderie and kind of brainstorming. I think they will keep people wanting to work together physically in some capacity. But I think but I think the the benefits of remote working are really great too, because they really bring a lot of new people into the workforce. Um, and especially for people with, with families or people who have a disability who maybe can't go to the office every day. There's so many great upsides. Um, but I think we're in the very early phases of seeing where that's gonna go. A few years ago, you uh, worked on a cool project where you shared sort of HR best practices with education, um, with schools and districts and networks. What were they most interested in or the the flip side of it? What could you observe about their HR practices where they could most use what you guys had learned? Yeah. We ran an experimental program where we worked with some of the largest uh, public school districts and charter school networks in the U.S., and we brought their HR leaders together to share um, what were some of the best practices in HR at these school districts. Also, what were some of the best companies uh, doing when it came to hiring, motivating, kind of retaining talent and advancing HR overall. And um, it was it was really exciting to see how how passionate the education leaders were about continually improving their schools, continually improving themselves as places to work. Um, one of the things that they really, the educators and the HR leaders really cared a lot about was learning more about people analytics. So how to bring more science and uh, more of an evidence base to our HR uh, practices. Uh, this is kind of a revolution that's happening in every HR organization, I think, in the world right now, realizing that 
we have much better access to data. There's really great science out there. How do we actually use science and data to inform many more of our people decisions, whether it's hiring, retention, um, development, the design of programs. And so we saw that the school districts were really interested in finding out how they could use more uh, people analytics or more data. The other piece was really uh, kind of on the other end of the spectrum was really about some of the cultural practices that tech companies like Google, but other, you know, kind of these tech companies um, and startups are really espousing. So uh, we, there was a lot of interest in some of the practices that Google has around transparency and information sharing. So um, I actually saw that a lot of the school districts that we worked with felt that they weren't doing a great job of necessarily sharing information with their employees and getting their input on how things were run, even within one school. So we did see a lot of schools try these kind of TGIFs. Uh, or these company all hands where you kind of just have a forum on a regular basis where uh, you share what's going on uh, in the organization and then you ask for input also from employees. So that was a really big one that I was surprising to me because it seems kind of basic when you kind of grow up in tech and you work in companies that are all about transparency. Um, but it seemed to really resonate really well with the leaders of the school districts too. A few years ago, Google uh, conducted some interesting research on teams and uh, you came up uh, with a surprising finding about what was important. Yeah. So one of the great parts about working at a great place at a place like Google is that um, we can conduct kind of long-term research studies um, on our own. And when we, we wanted to find out where, if there at Google, we wanted to find out if there were characteristics or qualities um, of certain teams that made them more successful than other teams. Of course, with the hope of like, let's make all teams better. Let's make everyone work better and more effectively together. And the most important characteristic that surfaced in the research was this element called psychological safety, which is basically like trust within a group. So trust can is a contract that exists between two people. Psychological safety is basically trust in a, in a small group setting. And actually, Amy Edmondson, who I believe is at Yale, she coined the term about 20 years ago. And she's been um, kind of pioneering the work for now two decades. The basic idea is that teams where people feel comfortable being honest, voicing their opinions, asking tough questions, where they feel psychologically safe to actually like say the hard things and go to the places of uh tackle the hard questions, those are the teams that are much more likely to be successful. Some of Amy's earliest work on this was actually done, uh, I think, in surgical teams in hospitals. And it, uh, one of the early findings that she had was that actually teams with high psychological safety will actually end up reporting more problems because they feel psychologically safe to report problems. And so you actually, in the there's this kind of hard part in the research where you actually, if you're using self-reporting on how successful the team is, teams that are actually doing really well will be much more open about their problems, which is actually generally like a really healthy thing. Um, so some of the elements that can make teams more psychologically safe are pretty basic. So if you've ever been on a small team or in a small meeting um, and you see one person dominate in conversation, uh, that's often a sign that there is not psychological, high psychological safety on a team. And so one of the remedies for that is being more deliberate about, say, conversational turn-taking. Um, who is making sure that everyone actually feels like they can speak, that they can um, contribute to the conversation? Another really important one is tone, right? When people do bring up something hard or give feedback, um, is the tone open? Or is the tone kind of dismissive of that? And very little, you know, just 
if a new person joins a group and the first time they bring up, say, something that they see as a problem or something that could be an improvement and they get shut down right away, you can pretty much bet they're going to not be bringing those things up in the future. And so it actually, I think it's really easy to kill psychological safety in a team and actually takes a lot longer to build it up um, in a team going forward. I want to wrap up with a few questions about artificial intelligence. So Google has um, has really become a leader in in both developing and sharing and using machine learning applications. Um, maybe we could start just by talking about HR. It seems prevalent in the use in HR. Um, most of the HR platforms now have uh, some machine learning capabilities. So you saw that wave beginning at Google. Yeah. Any observations about that? I think there is a huge amount of opportunity to use machine learning, particularly in um, in HR. But there's um, a higher burden uh, of there's a higher burden when it comes to people processes. So I think the whole movement, particularly around explainable AI, right, some of right. these deep learning algorithms, um, when you ask the software engineers who, you know, who design them, they say like, why does that work? What are the attributes that actually like point to that? They're like, I don't know. Right. And that's not okay when it comes to say, deciding whether to hire someone or how much someone should get paid. And so um, making sure there's going to be, a, I think it's going to take a longer time for areas yeah. like HR to adopt some of these because we have to figure out so some of learn, the ethics first. You learn maybe we shouldn't use uh, gender in our database to make yeah. a decision. And then you find out that there's these sneaky variables that yeah. are that correlate with gender exactly. or other attributes. So um, understanding bias and understanding yeah. causality is um, important, but challenging, right? Yeah. Unilever has been doing some of the most innovative work mm -hmm. in this space. There's some cool stuff happening. So in, in addition to just using machine learning and some AI, was there any... Did, I'm just wondering if from an HR perspective, as the company sort of migrated from from coding to analytics to really being AI centric, if that had other HR implications in terms of hiring and yeah. team development. Yeah, I mean the the market for for folks with uh, specialties in machine learning and these areas related to artificial intelligence is is really hot. And it's a global market and it's really competitive. And so I mean, Google, absolutely. I think we feel that every day in terms of hiring, recruiting, retaining those amazing, amazing folks. Well, you see you see uh, machine learning PhDs, they hang out a shingle, they start a company and they get acquired <laughs> the next week, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. So definitely there. And then, you know, we also saw uh, machine learning is, is really interesting, right? So people uh, want to be able to use it in all of our core products. So we actually found that employees started developing their own machine learning training programs for those who didn't have a background in machine learning to then kind of take that um, and and learn it and bring it to whatever they were working on. So it's um, I think that that's a great thing about a place like Google when people get excited about learning something new, they develop their own learning programs and all of a sudden like they've had like 10,000 people in the company take it or something. So last year you had the chance to serve as a commissioner on the Little Hoover Commission. You, uh, your commission released a report recently. It tried to provide some advice for the state of California. Maybe you could sure. give us a, a recap of the discussions and the recommendations. Yeah. So the Little Hoover Commission is a really neat uh, independent oversight agency uh, in Sacramento. 
and uh, were appointed by uh, various members of the government of the government. I was appointed by Governor Brown. Um, and we in general, we advise on the organization of the California state government. But we also look at important issues that we think the government needs to kind of tackle. Um, and we use a public process to collect recommendations, talk to constituents, and then write reports and recommendations. Um, and so my co-commissioner, David Beyer, uh, he was actually Al Gore's domestic policy advisor. Um, we we led a year-long project to create a set of recommendations for how the state of California should be creating, uh, should be tackling AI or, I wouldn't say tackling, how uh, a set of recommendations for how the government should be preparing for AI and utilizing AI in the government. So California is actually the fifth largest economy in the world. And we actually, a huge amount of the innovations that happen in machine learning and artificial intelligence and computer science overall are actually happening in the state of California. What's One of the things that struck me the most was... Um, after speaking to so many experts about the diverse applications that these huge data sets and these algorithms that could extract uh, it, uh, insights from these data sets, they're being used in so many places throughout society. Um, but our government is not thinking about how they can be using these tools to make our government services better. Um, and that just struck me as like a really huge opportunity. Um, we did meet one amazing woman from... Um, the agriculture colleges in uh, the UCs. And she talked to us about these embedded networked uh, sensors that they were kind of putting in fields and they were able to test all these different variables in terms of like plant growth and plant health. And um, they were able to have majorly positive outcomes for improving like crop out, crop uh, right. crop growth or reduce crop outcomes. Pesticide use, yeah, so many wonderful use, things. The big thing... And then there's huge applications for predicting natural disasters. Right. Um, and so one, I think there's a huge opportunity that California as a large state government, but any state government to be thinking about how do we actually bring in this incredible set of tools that computer scientists have created to help our population, to help us solve the media's problems that people are facing. And two, a really interesting set of conversations we had with some data experts was that um, States and their associated systems, like medical systems, university systems, have huge, like amazing data sets. They have amazing data sets about um, nature, about um, uh, about disasters, about maybe you know they might have personally identifiable information about individuals, but they also have a lot of aggregate uh, information about populations. Um, but they're not necessarily these data sets just kind of like live in these various bodies um, throughout the government. And there isn't a lot of systematic thinking done to figure out how can we, the data sets that could actually be used to solve really important problems for Californians, how can we actually share them with the people, with academics or with even for-profit entrepreneurs in a way that can actually create products and services that will serve California better. And so taking some time to think about this incredible set of data these data sets that California has, how can we actually make them more accessible? How can we help drive the kind of artificial intelligence revolution through the data that we have? I think that's a really important question um, our governor and uh, his leaders need to be thinking about. So the the uh, America Succeeds is a Denver nonprofit, and they've 
put our report called the Age of Agility and have mm-hmm. been calling for agile government. Um, but if you had trouble hiring machine learning specialists at Google, how could state agencies do it? Did, did you re- yeah. wrestle with with that? Do, we actually you, had some folks come down from Washington. Uh, we talked about this. Um, so, is um, it a partnership model? I think there's, you know, this, this. I think this is a really important question because obviously the public sector is probably not going to be able to compete when it comes to pay. Um, when uh, comes for people with advanced degrees in machine learning, um, right. in these computer science fields. So I think the important thing is that the government needs to find ways to make the work really attractive to people with that with that skill set. And uh, pay is just one of is one element, but the ability to work on problems and solutions that could impact millions or hundreds of millions or billions of people at scale, that's actually something that's really, really sexy to a lot of the types of folks who go into computer science right. and machine learning. And I think going back to this concept of the employee value proposition, the talent brand, making it really clear to that talent that by going to work in the public sector, whether it's for a short period of time or a long period of time, they could have massive positive impact on the world. I think we're not doing a good job of telling those stories and of, of attracting that talent. That's great. Um, what's next? You're going to keep working on talent? We'll see. I'm taking a thoughtful pause. Everyone kind of waits to do it a little later in their careers. So I decided to take six or 12 months and, and explore some different areas and then see what's next. You've had uh, an amazing journey in talent development at Google, and we appreciate you sharing your story. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. A big thanks to Yvetta for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate her lessons on talent development and policy advice on AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future content. And for all things innovations and learning, be sure to check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.